to the future. Thank you very much again for the invitation to be with you. It is an absolute joy to be here to open the Word of God, especially as there's a real sense of hunger for people wanting to know. And that's a, an absolute joy. We've been looking at the prophet. Anybody remember? <laughs> Elisha. Very good. That's so encouraging. And we're moving on to look at an unusual little passage. But I think there's some interesting stuff in it for us. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 4. And we're going to read from verse 38 down to the end of the chapter. So that's 2 Kings chapter 4. And in my Bible, it's page 372. So it's probably there or thereabouts. Okay. Death in a pot. Elisha returned to Gilgal, where there was a famine in that region. While the company of the prophets was meeting with him, he said to his servant, Put on the large pot and cook some stew for these men. One of the men went out into the fields to gather herbs and found a wild vine. He gathered some of its goods and filled the fold of his cloak. When he returned, he cut them up into the pot of stew, though no one knew what they were. The stew was poured out for the men. But as they began to eat it, they cried out, Oh, man of God, there is death in the pot. And they could not eat it. Elisha said, get some flour. He put it into the pot and said, serve it to the people to eat. And there was nothing harmful in the pot. A man came from Beth Shalisha, bringing the man of God 20 loaves of barley bread baked from the first ripe corn, along with some ears of new corn. Give it to the people to eat, Elisha said. How can I set this before a hundred men? The servant answered. But Elisha asked, or answered, give it to the people to eat, for this is what the Lord says. They will eat and will have some left over. Then he set it before them, and they ate and had some left over, according to the word of the Lord. What an unusual and strange passage of scripture to think about on Sunday morning. But let's pray together. Father, we do thank you so much that we have your precious word. And we thank you that we have your Holy Spirit. And we do want to pray and ask that as we look at it, your Holy Spirit will give us an understanding, O Lord, of what you're saying. And we pray that we might learn lessons from this passage which teaches us of stuff that happened so very many years ago that we might discern its relevance and that as we look at it, that we might hear your voice speaking to us. Words of encouragement, O oh Lord, and perhaps words that would um, strengthen our hearts. So Lord, give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to know. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I don't know if you've ever read this passage of scripture before. You almost certainly will have done, at least many of you who are a little bit older. 
But I suspect that if you have read the passage before, you will have read it quickly and scooted on to the next chapter because that's all about Mamer, and that's kind of exciting. And this passage doesn't, at first glimpse, look to be very exciting. And, and, and yet there are some great lessons for us to learn in this passage, and I want to lay some of them before you this morning. So we'll just jump in, and I think we've got four points to look at this morning, but the first one is as we look at the text, we see there are problems. It says, Elisha returned to Gilgal, and there was a famine in that region. So there was a problem, a problem of hunger. Now this teaches us that God sometimes places his servants in situations of difficulty and deprivation. Don't really need anybody to tell us that because we will all have gone through difficulties in one kind or another. And having looked a little bit at the life of Elisha, we've already seen him dealing with the lady whose son died. That was what we looked at the last time we were together, the Shunammite woman and her son died. So there was the smell of death in her house. And it's almost as though the Lord was saying, well, Elisha's doing well, but what shall we expose him to next? I know, famine. And so he returns home to Gilgal for what he thought might be a well-earned break with the lads at the Bible college. But Elisha walked straight into a famine. There were shortages, there was hunger, and the trainings were confounded. They didn't know how to improvise properly. So in a few words, Elisha walked into a mess. It's worth pointing out that if you read these two little sections very carefully, you'll see that the word eat, the verb, is used seven times. Now, we live in a country where it's very easy for us to go into, whoops, we're doing our usual, I think. <laughs> we nearly there. No, not yet. Just about any moment now. Yes, thank you. We live in a country where we have easy access to supermarkets. And if anything, we face choice overload. I have to take my phone with me when I, my wife sends me out to the supermarket because I have to ring her and say, was it this brand or that brand that you wanted? And sometimes the choice isn't between two brands, it's between several brands. Aisle after aisle of food, so many options. That's what we're used to. But in Elisha's day, it was very, very different indeed. They lived in a, in a day when they didn't have supermarkets. They were an agrarian society. They lived very close to starvation. And I suspect they spent most of their waking hours and just about all of their disposable income on growing or purchasing food. It was very difficult. They lived very close to the edge. Now, isn't it amazing that God is concerned about stuff like our daily food? Now, I know that the price of groceries is rocketing, isn't it? We know that. But isn't it interesting to look at the Lord's Prayer and to notice that when it comes to the petition section of the Lord's Prayer, that 
we pray for our daily bread before we pray that he would forgive our sins. Isn't it interesting? And that's what Jesus taught. So don't you think our Lord understands it, understands us, understands what worries us, what we're frightened of? Now we know, don't we, that famine can come as a judgment from God because of disobedience. We know that, as Graham has reminded us already this morning, that we don't we're not promised trouble-free lives. For Jesus said, the very last verse of John 16, before he bursts into prayer in John 17, in that upper room discourse, he says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. So from that, we learn that trouble is our traveling companion. And we know that in very many parts of the world, there's brutal persecution of those who walk with Jesus. I read somewhere that there were more martyrs in the 20th century than all the preceding centuries put together. And I don't expect the 21st century to get any better. God has a purpose in it all. Peter writes, for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, but these have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. It is in circumstances of difficulties that we experience the most of God's grace. It really is. Uh, someone had once observed that faith needs a catastrophe to walk on. And Elisha goes to the place where the prophets are, the young trainee prophets. You see, they need to learn some lessons about God. And Elisha begins to teach them. And I think that some of these lessons are lessons that we need to learn. They need to learn, needed to learn, first of all, about priorities. And I suspect that we need to be reminded about priorities. I came across an interesting photograph of somebody's wedding. Um, and as I looked at that, I just wondered, do you think that the groom got the priorities on his wedding day right? Do you think so? No. I don't think so. No, you're, thank you for that. I think you're absolutely right. I think he got it wrong. Well, let's look at, at verse 38. While the company of the prophets was meeting with him, he said to his servant, put on a large pot and cook some stew for these men. When there is an economic downturn, the natural reaction is rather predictable, isn't it? It tends to be reduced generosity and more focus on me and less focus on them. There's a, a very, oops, a very well-known man called Francis Schaeffer who's now with the Lord, and he expressed it. He said the priorities of a materialistic culture are personal peace and affluence. Well, to put it another way, get all you can, can all you get, sit on the can, and to heck with the rest. It's fascinating to see the generosity of Elisha. And it's also fascinating to see the generosity of what happens next, because it says a man came from Beth Shalisha, bringing the man of God 20 loaves of barley bread for the first ripe corn, along with some ears of new corn. 
Give it to the people to eat, Elisha said. You see, grace makes us generous even in times of famine. Grace makes us generous. Don't you think that the church's role is to give away generously what God has given to us? He's given us the gospel, hasn't he? <laughs> Not to keep to ourselves, but to give away. It would have been understandable, I guess, how this man um, from Beth uh, Shalisha uh, had reasoned, times are tough. I think I wait until inflation is under control, until the interest rate rises, until my investments are showing a little bit more profit, it would be a different story. Perhaps if my wife were working, we could afford to give more. Resources were scarce for Elisha. And yet twice he offers to feed the apprentice prophets. He could have said, these loaves were a gift to me. So I'm going to keep them for myself. But he didn't. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. In other words, God has made his grace abound to us in order that we might, in all circumstances, abound in every good work. So we can't just keep these things for ourselves. There is a well-known story of a church in London that was badly damaged during the Blitz in the Second World War. And in trying to tidy up the church and get it ready again for worship, they came across a statue that had been shattered into pieces. And somebody very carefully put the statue together again, but found that both hands were missing. And it stayed just like that, that repaired statue, looking not only incomplete, but pointless until somebody put underneath it a card with the words, Christ has no hands for ours to do his work today. Christ has no hands but yours to do his work in your neighborhood. Isn't that kind of challenging? So there were problems and uh, Elisha began to teach them about priorities. And then he went on to teach them some lessons about protection. Look at verse 39. One of them went out into the fields to gather herbs and found a wild vine. He gathered some of its goods and filled the fold of his cloth. When he returned, he cut them up into a pot of stew, though no one knew what they were. And that last phrase is really important. They got these things and nobody knew what they were, but they put them into the stew. Now we know, don't we, that when Adam and Eve sinned, the whole of creation fell. Is that right? And I have this kind of mental picture of Adam coming out of the garden, uh, having sinned against God, and he steps on a thistle for the very first time. He doesn't know what a thistle is, never seen one before. He's never experienced pain, but he's got thorns or, or prickles in his foot, and he, he goes out and he hops up and down, and of course he lands with the other foot on the same thistle. 
and he doesn't know what's going on. I can just kind of imagine that because that was a new experience for him. And all around us, there are plants which are poisonous. Now, I'm a country bumpkin. I was brought up to be really careful about what mushrooms you eat and what mushrooms you don't eat because not all mushrooms are magic to eat. Some of them are poisonous. And what about that? That looks pretty pretty, doesn't it? Do you know what it is? It's deadly nightshade. And do you know why it's called deadly? Simply because it is deadly. It is deadly. There are things around about us that can look harmless and innocent, but we do well to be very careful. It has to be said that some prophets and preachers are so heavenly minded as to be of little earthly use. In other words, they were not practical. Elisha gave the cooking responsibilities to his servant Gehazi. But one of the trainee prophets decided to try out for Master Chef. And he went off to see what he could find. And he came up with these little gourd things that looked nice. They looked pretty exotic. Maybe he'd never seen them before. And he thought, perhaps, oh, let's spice up the stew. Pretty good. So he brought them back and he showed them, and nobody knew what they were. But no problem. We'll cut them up and put them in the stew. And that's what he did. And did he make a mistake? Oh, my word, did he make a mistake. The stew was poured out for the men, but as they began to eat it, they cried out, oh, man of God, there's death in the pot, and they couldn't eat it. Now, some uh, commentators have suggested that the gourds were actually a plant called Citrullus colcinthus. I hope I pronounced that correctly, which acts as a strong laxative, but too much of it is, is, uh, is fatal. So can you imagine these poor fellows eating this stew and recognizing that, oh dear, I'm in trouble. I'm in serious trouble. Well, verse 41 says, Elisha said, get some flour, put it in the pot and send serve it to the people to eat. And there was nothing harmful in the pot. We might pause here and wonder, why does God mix visible signs in with his mighty works? Simply so that God's work might grip us and hold our memories captive. Now, God doesn't always use visible signs because our memories sometimes play tricks on us. But sometimes God uses pictures instead of arguments. Can you imagine what it would be like to um, attend a reunion for the sons of those the prophets years later on? One of the old fellows might say, well, do you remember that time when that fellow Uzziah chopped up those fine little things and weird gourds and popped them into the stew? Do you remember how awful it tasted and how sick it Nearly killed us, didn't it? And another one would pipe up and say, Do you remember how Elijah just grabbed the flour, all the flour, and he heaved it into the pot? What a time they would have had thinking about that. You see, visible signs are God's defense against spiritual amnesia, and spiritual amnesia can afflict all of us. Okay, that's quite interesting. Well, what can we learn from these things? Well, there are some lessons that I think are interesting and worth 
thinking about for just a moment or two. Let me identify a few of them. The first one, as we see, involves acting alone. Now, initiative can be a really good thing, but proud, independent action is something else. Elisha had not commanded them to do this. Independent action can actually endanger other people's lives. Now, of course, the young fellow who was trying out for master chef, his intentions were pretty good. He had the best of intentions. But you know, good intentions are not enough because good intentions can harm others. Now, you will have heard it said that the road to hell is paved with good intentions, and so it is. And what I believe is more important than good intentions is obedience. Obedience is much more important than good intentions. Acting alone. We ought to always act in obedience to what we read in the Word of God. Then the second lesson is, has to do with the ignorance being exposed. You see, not only was the cook fooled by the goods, but it says when he returned, he cut them up into the pot of stew, though no one knew what they were. There was confusion. They all examined these little melon-like objects, and in they went simply because they looked nice. And what they needed was discernment, didn't they? And what you guys need as a church, and what we need as individuals, is discernment. That means we need God's help so that we make the right choices. Because not every choice is between good and good. Some choices are between good and bad. And they don't always appear to be bad choices. It's only down the road we discover that, oh, we've taken a wrong turn. And instead of going just a, a few yards off course, that we're a mile off course. And if we keep going tomorrow, we'll be 10 miles off course. That's what happens. So we do need to be aware of a need for discernment and help to make the right choices. And that's a good thing to pray for, especially for those in leadership. And, and, and then the next lesson has to do with a painful experience. You see, it was only after they tucked in and tasted that they became aware of their danger. But thankfully, the discovery was made before it was too late. We read in 1 Thessalonians, now brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. No man knows the day nor the hour that the Son of God will come back. It could be today. It could be before this service is over. We don't know. We really need to be grateful to take the opportunity of a lifetime within the lifetime of the opportunity. Who knows how soon it will be too late. We have the opportunity of meeting with God today. 
Elisha knew what to do. Flour is just flour. There's no scientific basis for what he did. He just did what the Holy Spirit told him to do. It was an action dictated by the Holy Spirit and God's prophet, Elisha, knew how to apply the spiritual remedy to deal with the poison. So what do we take from this today in 2022? Because none of us would be foolish enough to pluck stuff from the hedgerow that we didn't know what it was and pop it in the stew. What does this mean for us today? Well, I think that we need to understand that false teaching is poison which denies or distorts the word and work of God. And today there will be those who will tell you that Jesus was just a good man. He wasn't God. He was just a good man. But how could he be a good man if he claimed to be the son of God? And the Bible tells us that Jesus stepped as deity into humanity. He is part of the Trinity, not just a good man. There are those who will argue today that oh, you're fixated on the cross and, and the principle of the technical term is substitutionally atonement that Jesus died in your place. I mean, sure you're not that bad. And Jesus needed to die. Oh, that's ridiculous. But yet the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. The Bible tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. That's what this communion is all about. Remembering what he did on the cross for us. There are those who will say, salvation by faith, not at all. All you need to do is go to church. C of E, Christmas or Easter, or if you're very enthusiastic, Christmas and Easter. You don't really need to be saved. That's a, that's an old-fashioned word. We don't believe in that stuff today. But I believe in it today because it's in the Word of God. And not one jot or tittle passes away from the Word of God. They will say, born again? You don't need to be born again. That's a bit too serious religious nonsense for born again. How can you be born again? But didn't Jesus himself say you must be born again? Of course he did. And people will say, heaven and hell, and how often do you hear people in the well-known people in the, in the in the media say, oh well, I'm stuck. My, my wife or my husband that died and they're looking down on me. And, 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 Nobody goes to church, but everybody goes to heaven. But that's the thinking today, isn't it? But I, I tell you, through tears, the Bible speaks about hell as being an eternal separation from God. People are being misled. We need discernment to, to counteract this terrible poison because the antidote is truth. And there were those who will say, oh, well, listen, 
What's true for you is true for you, but it's not true for me. Because my twin brother says that to me. There are lots of ways to God. My reality is this, and more, it's different to your reality. But again, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. <coughs> How could he be a good man if he says that he's telling lies? But he isn't telling lies. This is the truth. And the antidote to all of these falsehoods that we hear around about us is truth. The antidote to bitterness is God's grace. Unforgiveness leads to bitterness. The antidote is forgiveness. The antidote to pride is servanthood and humility. The antidote to moral failure is a genuine repentance. So let's get back to the story because Elisha, they put flour in the pot and Elisha then gave it to them to eat. And I suspect some of them thought, well, hold a minute. It's not bad, it tasted awful. I'm not sure I want to try it. I'll maybe watch and see if somebody else eats it first. And if they don't care, I then might have a, have a bit. Bear in mind, they were hungry. But what do they do? Well, they had to eat the stew. So they ate the stew. It was an act of faith. They had to trust in my ship. And there was nothing harmful in the pot. Can't you see what the text is telling us? Isn't it saying, if you just believe, you'll find that what God has is good. And then the fourth thing we learn, problems, priorities, protection. The fourth thing is provision. The stew was enjoyed, but the famine continued. God was kind, and he sent a man with 20 loaves of bread. Gehazi, Elisha's servant, said in verse 43, how can I set this before a hundred men? His servant asked. And Elisha was answered, give it to the people to eat, for this is what the Lord says, they will eat and have some left over. What a great provision was made. God's provision is always great. In the 19th century, there was a man called Dr. Bernardo, of whom you will have heard, and he conceived of the idea of putting London's homeless waifs and strays into the safety and security of small cottages where they could be loved and cared for. And close friends tried to dissuade Bernardo on the grounds that this was a pointless and well-nigh crazy idea. And Bernardo wavered. He wasn't sure whether or not this was God's will. And at that time, he attended a conference in Oxford, and he stayed in a small hotel in the town, and he barely begun to unpack his suitcases when a knock came on his bedroom door. And he opened the door to see a total stranger there. And the stranger said, Dr. Bernardo? And Bernardo responded, yes. 
The stranger said, you're thinking of building a little village for orphan girls at Ilford, are you not? Yes, doctor, the doctor admitted. Well, put me down for the first cottage, said the visitor, placing a cheque for a large amount of money in Bernardo's hands. He promptly left, closing the door with a gentle click, and the rest was history. God is so gracious. He doesn't just dull out little bits. He gives <laughs> second helpings as well. A cup full measure pressed down and running over. Isn't that what God does? When God provides in response to our faith, his supply will always be all that we need with enough left over for us to share with others. So that's all I have to share with you this morning. I'm not altogether sure how it applies to each of us. I suspect different ways to each of us. But I pray that God's word would shape us. That we might not just be people who mark our Bibles, but that we might be people whose lives are marked by what we read in the Word together. So let's pray together. Father, we bless you and praise you for the truth of your precious Word. We're so very grateful, O Lord, for the love that you poured out upon us. We do want to pray for one another, for every head bowed in your presence. Lord, you know what we each will need. You know where we are on our journey. Some may have yet to start the journey. Others may have started fairly recently. And a few of us may have been on the road for a long time. But we pray, Father, that when we're starting or near the finish line, Lord, that you'd help us to go on with enthusiasm. Because you are so wonderful. And you are worthy of all the praise and the honor and the glory that we can give to you. And we want to pray very particularly, Father, for those who may not know you. Lord, that they might, by grace, step over that line that separates death from life today <coughs> and come into the joy of knowing how good it is to to Jesus and to be a child of the king. So would you encourage us and help us to go on and make us an encouragement to others always. We ask these things in the precious name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.